Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. And after those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey ahead. And they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to him. Then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this scripture we have this morning. I pray that we would all be challenged where we need challenging, convicted where we need convicting, encouraged where we need encouraging, and that your will would be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, growing up as a, as a preacher's kid, I heard sermons from my dad all the time, uh, and we would go and travel and listen to a, a bunch of people preach, and so I grew up hearing sermons often, and I used to wonder why so many pastors seemed to use so many illustrations and examples that revolved around their kids. And I'd wonder, like, you can't think of something else? And then I had kids, and the illustrations just sort of fall right into your hands sometimes. Uh, has anyone in here ever temporarily misplaced a kid? Has it happened? It's okay, so it, it's happened uh, to a few of us, maybe in a Walmart or a Kmart, if you ever had the privilege to, to go into one of those uh, back in the day. How about in your own house? Has it happened? So a few weeks ago, it was a Sunday afternoon. Laura and I, we were in our room watching some documentary, and Alice and Jane, they were both in and out of the room playing. Uh, they were, they'd come in our room and run around and chase each other and play. Then they'd go run into the living room and play with toys out there. And that's what they were doing for some time. And a few minutes goes by, and they haven't come into the room. And I notice that it's quiet. And it's never good when it's quiet, right? Like when you've got young kids, if it's quiet, you know they're up to something. And so I go and I check, as a responsible father does, and I don't see any kids. And I notice that the back door is wide open to go outside. It's a small crowd today, so it's less judgment uh, from you guys. But the, the, the back door is wide open, and I run outside, and I'm calling for Alice, and it's dead silent. And if you know Alice, if you've ever called for her outside like we have, she always responds. We'll go, Alice, and she'll go, what? We always hear her. She always responds. So Alice isn't, isn't, resp isn't responding to my call. Uh, and so I start to get a little nervous, and I run inside, and I say, Laura, I don't see them. So now she's nervous, and so we start going through the house, through the kitchen, and then as I'm going through the kitchen, I notice that the other door that goes outside to the carport is wide open. 
And so I sprint through the laundry room, and I'm out there, and I'm calling for Alice, I'm calling for Jane, and we don't hear or see them anywhere. And it's like 4 o'clock, so it's getting dark soon, and we're starting to settle into panic mode now. This all happens over like 45 seconds. And so Laura runs, Laura runs back inside. I'm outside, and I'm getting ready to start jogging down the street. And I hear Laura call. She says, I've got Alice. So Alice was in the very back playroom with the door shut. So when we ran out of our room, we didn't think to open that door. We looked through the whole rest of the house except that door. So that's where Alice is. She was back in the playroom with the door shut, so she couldn't hear us calling. So that just leaves Jane. Where's Jane? Who knows where Jane is? And so I come back inside through the carport entrance, which goes through the laundry room. And as I'm going through the laundry room, I'm walking out of the corner of my eye, I see a tiny figure. And it's Jane eating cat food. And so that, that's, that's the story of our misplaced children, <laughs> quietly eating cat food. So when I, ran, when I ran through the laundry room, I just missed her over there in the corner like a little mouse eating cat food. Everything uh, was fine, but only two minutes passed of not knowing where our kids were, and it got scary. I mean, that can happen. If, if, you, if you've lost your kid... Especially, I mean, if you're out somewhere, it can get scary quick. So imagine Mary and Joseph who thought they lost Jesus, the Son of God, for three whole days. So, so let's walk through this story. The passage tells us that every year, Mary and Joseph, they would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And so for some context for you guys, just before this story starts, we learn that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they settle in a town called Nazareth. So every year, they would travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And that's somewhere between 80 and 90 miles that they would travel. And they would do this every single year, Luke tells us. And I think Luke, he adds this to add evidence that Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of Jesus, they were faithful. They had true, proper, genuine faith in God. And attending this festival, it was commanded by God. It's commanded in the Old Testament so that they could celebrate the goodness of God in rescuing his people out of Egypt. So this was a time of fellowship with God's people. This was a time of celebration uh, with God's people, a time of praising God. And Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph, they committed their life to this. The distance, the 80 miles... It did not stop them from faithfulness. The financial cost of this trip, it did not stop them from faithfulness. We know they were poor because they couldn't afford a lamb, right? I think Jordan talked about this a few weeks ago. When Jesus was dedicated, they brought two young pigeons instead, which God allowed uh, for those who were too poor for a lamb. And you can bet that traveling 80 miles every year for a week-long festival was not easy on their finances, likely on foot if they were poor. But they remained faithful. The obstacles did not stop them from loving God, obeying God, fellowship, and praise. And they made it happen. And that really is, that that short little add-in that Luke has, that picture is the reality of genuine faith. The obstacles don't stop us from praise. The obstacles don't stop us from fellowship. The obstacles don't stop us from loving God and loving his people. So the passage tells us that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they travel for this Passover festival, and this festival would take seven or eight days, depending on the year. A week-long festival. 
that's crazy. I, I can go to a small get-together at 6, and at 7.30, it's like, all right, let's wrap this thing up. Let's get home. But they would get together, and they would celebrate for a week. They had a party for a week. So they go, they fellowship, they worship, they celebrate, and then party's over. They're ready to go home. And so Mary and Joseph, they assume that Jesus is with them. They assume he's with the traveling party, so they head home. Now, we may be tempted to look at this and, and wonder, how could you not know your son wasn't with you? Well, if I can lose my own two kids while they're in my own house, uh, this scenario shouldn't be that surprising. And for a little extra context and picture for you, if you remember a year or so ago, uh, Jordan preached through the Psalms of Ascent. And if you remember what those Psalms are, these Psalms were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled together ascending up the hill to Jerusalem to celebrate three different festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, and Passover. So this, this festival and this story, they traveled in large groups. It was a time of fellowship. Uh, they were singing. They were laughing. They were talking. It's not out of the question for them to have assumed Jesus. It's Jesus we're talking about, so we can assume he's a responsible 12-year-old boy. Uh, it's not out of the question for them to have assumed that Jesus was with the traveling party. Okay, it's not out of the question to think that he would have been with them. And they're singing, laughing, talking, and then it gets to a point. You can imagine how this might have gone with Mary and Joseph. They've been traveling for a day, and Mary realizes she hasn't seen Jesus. So she goes to Joseph, and she says, hey, hon, honey, have you seen Jesus? I haven't seen him in, in a day. What's, what's he been up to? And Joseph says, well, I thought you had him. And she goes, I thought you had him. And then their hearts sink. We lost Jesus. We lost the Son of God. God himself commissioned us to be his earthly parents, and we lost him. If you could have summed up our entire mission in big, bold letters, it would say, just don't lose him. And we lost Jesus. So Mary and Joseph, they, they search the group, they ask around, and no one there... Jesus, no one in the group. So they go all the way back to Jerusalem. They've already traveled a day this way. So they go back to Jerusalem and they get back to Jerusalem and they search and they search and they search and they can't find them. This goes on for, for three days. Imagine that for three days you can't find your 12-year-old son. Who is the Messiah? I imagine that they were terrified. And finally they get to the temple and there's Jesus in the temple. 12-year-old Jesus sitting with the teachers of the law, asking questions, listening, he himself teaching. And the passage says that everyone was astonished at the things young Jesus was saying. Astonished at his understanding, astonished, astonished at his answers, at his questions. So Mary, she runs up to Jesus and she says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And I think that right there sort of clarifies some responsibility for us. I think growing up, I would read this passage as a kid who was not growing and having their own kids yet. And I would think, how could they lose their son? Like, how, how irresponsible could you be? This is Jesus. How could, how could you not keep up with him? And it can be tempting to, to look at it like that. But at the end of the day, accidents happen. They always have, always will. But in the context... Jesus isn't just some random 12-year-old kid. In their context, in ancient Jewish culture like this, a 12-year-old boy uh, is on the brink of manhood. 
That, that's, that's how their culture functioned. He's, he's probably already got the keys to the horse at this point in his life. A 12-year-old boy in Jewish context finished high school six years ago. That's, that's the world that they lived in. And, and I'm being dramatic, but you get the point. This story, it doesn't happen because of parental negligence. Mary and Joseph, it, they weren't being irresponsible. Jesus himself is responsible here. He made this choice, and he made this choice with purpose. So Jesus, he says to Mary, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? In other words, Jesus is saying to Mary, where else would you think I would be right now? And the text says that Mary and Joseph, they did not understand what Jesus was saying to him at the time. But Jesus, being a good son, he, he listens to his earthly parents. He's obedient. He goes with them. And that's the story. And, and this story is fascinating to me. We talked about this passage in our college Bible study uh, about a month ago. And I've been thinking about it ever since we talked about it. I've never heard a sermon preached on this passage. I, I think part of it might be because there's so little detail in this story about what actually happens and what Jesus said when he was teaching and what, what are the, the theological implications from this? And what can we, we learn from it as an application? But part of what makes it so fascinating uh, is that this is all we have from Jesus' childhood. It's all we have. We have the birth story until up to him being two at most, maybe. Then it's silence for ten years. We have no idea, nothing, not a shred of anything that happened in those ten years. And then we have this very, very short 10-verse story when Jesus was 12. And then it's absolutely silence for another 18 years until Jesus starts his public ministry. So Luke, he adds this story with some kind of purpose for us. A little context about Luke for you. Uh, Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. It's thought that he may have been one of the 72 that Jesus uh, commissioned out in Luke chapter 10. He's the only Gentile to have written any part of the New Testament, and he has written more of the New Testament than any other writers, including Paul. But by volume, Luke and Acts makes up the majority of the New Testament compared to all the other writers. So to have been able to write this much, Luke, he would have had to have talked to a lot of people. Like There, there were things, not being one of the twelve, that he wouldn't have seen personally which means he was going to have to sit down with people, with other disciples, and, and to say, hey, tell me this story. What did you see? What did you experience? What happened? And, and something that Laura pointed out to me was that if Luke is interviewing people about Jesus, where do we think he got this story? The end of this passage tells us that Mary, she treasured these things in her heart. So imagine Luke, he goes to Mary to hear some stories about Jesus, and he asks for one from his younger years. And this is the story that Mary shares. Something about this story meant enough to Mary that she wanted to have it added to Luke's gospel. In the passage, it tells us that Mary kept these things in her heart. She remembered them. They stuck out to her. You remember how the passage, it tells us that Mary and Joseph, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying when he said, didn't you know it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Jesus was telling Mary, hey, you should know that I'd be doing the work of God. Wouldn't you of all people know that I would be doing God's work? The angel visited you 
The angel came with a message from God telling you who I would be. Why would you assume anything else? Why would you think I would be anywhere else but in my father's house? But Mary, she did assume differently. She didn't know what Jesus would be up up to. She didn't first think to go to the temple to find him, and neither did Joseph. Both of them received messages from angels, but they still didn't understand. And I think what that tells us is that there was a lot about Jesus in his life that didn't make sense at the time. We, we read it with hindsight. We get, to, we get to open the Bible, and we have Genesis to Revelation, so we have the full story. We know the story beginning to end and how it's supposed to end. But they didn't have that then. They're living it in the moment, so there are things that didn't add up. And the disciples, they share a similar misunderstanding all throughout the Gospels. They saw for three years the works of God through Jesus, and they didn't understand so much of the time. Jesus, he told them plainly, hey, I'm going to be murdered, but after three days, I'm going to come back. Like He says that to them word for word. They're going to kill me, but don't worry, because in three days, I'm going to be resurrected. And what did they do when he died? Nobody was pointing back to Jesus saying that. They freaked out. They all lost it. What are we going to do? What now? How could he leave us? There were many things that God laid out plainly to his people about Jesus that no one understood until after he died, until after he was resurrected. We can bet that after Jesus' public ministry, after his death, after his resurrection, Mary finally understood what her 12-year-old son was saying all those years ago. That the God of this universe did not come to this earth to be like everyone else. That there was no way that he could be like all the other 12-year-old boys who just went home with their mom and dad. Mary tells Jesus, your father and I have been looking everywhere for you. And Jesus' response is, what are you talking about? I've been with my father this whole time in his house doing his business. And at the time, Mary and Joseph don't know what he's saying, but post-resurrection, Mary can look back and go, oh, he was, he was preparing for all of this. Like, that's what that was about. It was about all of this. A little earlier in this chapter, we have Simon's prophetic praise. I think Jordan preached on that passage two weeks ago. Uh, and, and there's a part of his prophecy where he tells Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul. The death of Jesus would be painful for Mary, like a sword to her soul. It's, it's hard not to see some connection of this story in Luke chapter 2, a concerning and painful three days for Mary without 12-year-old Jesus during Passover, a connection to Jesus being in the tomb also during Passover, a much, much greater concerning and painful three days for Mary without Jesus. I think there has to be some kind of foreshadowing that's happening there in that story. And one of the fascinating parts of this passage is what Jesus was actually doing in the temple. It's not like he was just sitting there like a back row Baptist, just kind of paying attention and listening from afar. He was a participant. He was listening to the teachers. He was asking them questions. He was hearing their answers. He was sharing his own wisdom and answers at 12 years old. This was not normal to have a 12-year-old in the temple teaching the teachers. Some there who have probably been teaching twice as long as, as this kid has been alive. The passage says that they were astonished at his answers and his understanding. They'd never seen anything like it. Not just anybody could be a teacher 
of the law. This wasn't something that you could, you, you just fill out your resume and you, most people get accepted. Like, these guys had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of it memorized by like age 10. Like, they grew up, they, they knew scripture better than anyone. And they had no idea that these massive amounts of scripture that they know so well was actually written and given by the 12-year-old that was in the temple with them. They had no idea who he really was, but they were astonished. You know, some of these teachers in this story very well could have been Pharisees that had run-ins with Jesus later in life. Maybe Nicodemus was one of them. Maybe some that ended up hating him were there. I think it's important, too, that just because they were astonished at his teachings and, and they were impressed with the things he was saying, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were happy or agreeing with the things that he was saying. Because you can recognize a skilled teacher and understand them without favoring what's being said. Also, a 12-year-old boy like Jesus at this time, that's not a threat to them. He's just a 12-year-old kid who's an amazing teacher and like we're super impressed, but he's 12, so he'll go on his way and we'll keep doing our thing. They could sit there and they could hear him and they could go, oh, that's nice and impressive. We've never seen anything like this. And that'd be the end of it. But a 30-year-old Jesus, a 30-year-old man who's claiming that he's Lord, claiming he's the Messiah, and is building a following and saying, hey, what these teachers are teaching you about Scripture, it doesn't actually reflect the true heart of God. And it's completely shattering the legalistic notions and ideas that faith is external. And you've got this 30-year-old man who's crashing right into the heart issues of sin. That is a threat to prideful and powerful teachers of the law. But Jesus, he astonished them in what he said. And it's one of those passages, you ever read a passage and you're like, I wish we just had more detail. I like to think that when we get to heaven, uh, that there's going to be opportunities for us to see how like, these things all played out. This is one of those stories I would love to be able to just kick back with some popcorn and just like watch it happen on a big screen. I think that would be awesome. Um, but we just we, we know so little about what happened in that temple, and we just have to wonder and imagine. I think for me, the most fascinating part about this passage is the reminder that God became like us. Philippians 2 verses two, Philippians 2: two, six through eight tells us of Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Take a moment just to think about that. Before coming to this earth, Jesus existed in the form of God. We don't know what that form was. We don't know what it looked like, but he had it. It was his. And he did not consider that form something for him to keep for himself. He gave it up. And he didn't give it up to take on an equal or a better form. He humbled himself and became like us. He took on human weakness. God became weak like us. He shares in our weaknesses. He didn't bust open the clouds in his divine form and, and say, hey, I'm, I'm here to save you guys. 
No, he wanted his people to have a Savior that they could know and trust, really understood and lived this broken world that we live in. He came in weakness. He came in the weakest possible form that he could have ever come, a baby. And I, I think in a lot of ways, our culture has painted this sort of unrealistic picture of the birth of Jesus. It, it, it was a quiet, peaceful scene. That's sort of the message that we hear a lot at Christmas time. And I've had the privilege of being in the delivery room twice now, and I can tell you it's not quiet or peaceful. If you've had kids, anyone who's had kids knows that. Mary, his mother was in pain giving birth to him. He, he came covered in blood and probably dirt because of the poor conditions he was born in. And there weren't any nurses there waiting to help clean him up. Like The God of this world came in that way. He cried. A, a quiet baby is actually not a good thing. That means there's a problem. He needed his mom. And as a baby, the Lord needed his mother. It's amazing to think about. He came in weakness. He was like us. It wasn't like he was laying there as a baby, thinking the whole time about how he is God and his mission and just waiting around for the time to come. No, he had infant weakness in every way, physically, mentally, and he took that on himself for us. And somehow, still being God at the same time, mysteriously holding together every atom in the universe. There's a mystery to it. He grew like we do. He fell and scraped his knee like we do. He was hungry and thirsty like we get. He wasn't superhuman. His flesh and bone could break just like ours. He understands physical needs. He understands spiritual needs. If he didn't, he never would have said a prayer in his life. But when you read the Gospels, like 80% of the Gospel is Jesus going off on his own so he could pray, so he could be spiritually healthy to be obedient to the will of God. He understands emotional needs. And this is the thing that makes Christianity so different in what it offers than anything else, that nothing else can offer, that we can know with confidence that our God, that we worship, understands our pain. So that when we go to him, we have confidence that he knows and he sympathizes with our weakness. He knows pain. He knows grief. He knows sorrow. He knows tears. He knows rejection. He knows isolation. He knows temptation. He knows these things because as he came in weakness, he lived through them. He lost his friend Lazarus, and in all likelihood, he lost Joseph, his earthly father. Joseph isn't mentioned again after this passage anywhere in the Gospels and is nowhere present at the crucifixion. That would mean that Jesus personally knows fatherlessness. That's the God that we serve, that we believe in, that he knows and understands it. Jesus, he was hated and rejected by Pharisees. He was respected and rejected. The rich young ruler, he was tempted to sin. He agonized in the garden over his impending death. Scripture says his sweat was like drops of blood as he physically recoiled at the thought of what he was about to have to go through. And when the Romans showed up, he was abandoned by his disciples. And the whole time, he not once knew any sin. So that when our burdens are heavy, and they are often, 
He is the only one who is fit to carry them for us. And the beautiful thing is, he wants to. Matthew 11.28 tells us, it's been one of my favorite verses that I've used in sermons. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. One last point I want to make, and we can close. The blood of this Jesus in this story covers everything. Every sin, every shortcoming, every doubt, all of it. If our eyes are fixed on Christ, we can have true joy and contentment through anything. I really believe that. I believe any, anything could happen to us, and if our eyes are fixed on Christ, he will carry us through it. It's the new year, so we're all making our New Year's resolutions. Yesterday was my last day of eating junk. I didn't make it past breakfast this morning. But it makes more sense to me to start on a Monday. Like it, you, you, know, you get what I'm saying? Like It's still the weekend. Like we'll start fresh on Monday, January 2nd. Uh, make your goals personal, family, spiritual, whatever your goals are, make them. It's good, and we should have them. But it will be very easy to put those goals, those resolutions, on the throne that's in your heart. And when your goal isn't met perfectly, which it won't be, you'll be let down because now you have no hope because your hope was in meeting that resolution. But... If your eyes are fixed on Christ, you can fall and you can fail and you can get back up because you know you still have hope and you know that God loves you and you know that his blood covers you always. Within every human heart is a throne. That's how I like to picture it. Every human heart has a throne in it. And someone or something is on that throne always. If your resolutions are on that throne, you will be let down. If your job is on that throne, you will be let down. If your husband or wife is on that throne, you will be let down. If your kids are on that throne, they will let you down. If your parents are on the throne, they will let you down. Friends, cars, money, sports, your favorite political candidate, conservatism, liberalism, fill in the blank. If, if you put it on the throne, you will be let down. And you can't have true contentment. That is only and has always only been found in Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. There is only hope in him. Let's pray.